Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see you today, and it's good to gather and behold that holy God. And I want to talk this morning, I love talking about the good news that our holy God uh, wants us to know this morning and the impact that it has on each of our lives. And I've seen the impact it has on my life and and many other lives, and just want to talk about that and praise God for that good news. Uh, Today in Acts 17, we're going to look at the impact of that, the truth of that good news in in our lives. We've been studying through the book of Acts uh, this spring, if you haven't been with us, and we're going to be looking at the 17th chapter of Acts this morning. Um, We use that word a lot, right? The impact of the gospel in our lives. What does the word gospel mean? If we're going to talk about that, uh, we need to know what are we saying when we say the word gospel? Because for you, you might have something in your mind when you hear gospel. Maybe you associate it with one of those choirs that sings a lot more enthusiastically than we do here, right? Maybe you think of the Billy Graham crusades and preaching the gospel. We even say, as a church, our vision statement for what we believe God's called us to is to be a gospel-centered community. So if we're going to be a community of people that are centered around this thing called the gospel, we should probably know what is the gospel itself. There's a lot of ways to talk about the gospel, the good news. Pastor Ross encourages us to have a, a gospel statement kind of in our back pocket for our own hearts and to share with people around us. And it's one simple one that, that I've used is that Jesus lives Jesus saves and Jesus reigns. This is the good news. He lives, he reigns, and he saves. I'm a pastor, so it's got to be three points, right? That's just how I have to roll. And, and I really could make it better if I alliterated it, and I did. The risen rescuer reigns, all right? So now, now we're cooking with gas. Now, this is the good news, that our Savior is risen from the grave, conquering sin and death, rescuing us from our old way of life into his kingdom. And now, because of his resurrection, he reigns as king of the the universe now and forever. And that's good news. Amen. This is good news that we proclaim. This good news, this gospel truth has changed my life. I I grew up in the church. Some of you may have. I was a pastor's kid. Uh, I guess I I still am. Um, But I I knew that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I knew that. But I remember getting to Bible school as an 18-year-old freshman. And I remember one of the, we had a Bible study uh, early on. We met in the cafeteria and they were talking about Romans chapter 6. And, and, and talking about this truth that I had never really heard before. I knew that Jesus had died for my sins. I knew he had paid the penalty for my sins. But what I was seeing in this study in Romans 6 is that not only did Christ die for me, but that I actually died with Christ. And that I've been raised to a new life with Christ. And what they were saying, this, this chapter was saying that God has not just given us the, the freedom from the penalty of sin, but actually the freedom from sin's power in our lives. And I was, re- my brain was busting because I was enslaved to some, sp- some very specific sins that I needed freed from. And to hear this good news, like I can remember where I was sitting. I can remember the moment like it was yesterday, hearing the good news of a Savior that can free us from those sins. And man, the gospel changed me. But the gospel has also challenged me. Because Romans 6 also says that we used to be slaves to sin, and we've been rescued from that, but we've been rescued to a new master. And he's a good master, but his name is Jesus, King Jesus, the risen, reigning rescuer. Now, it can be awesome to have a king, an authority outside of yourself. It can also be super annoying, right? Let's be honest. I mean, sorry, it's, it's good growth opportunities for us. That because Jesus, the whole, I've found over and over again the Holy Spirit convicting me of things to, to, that I need to do that I don't want to do. Now, in hindsight, I always see the Holy Spirit was smarter than me once again. But when I find he's calling me to confess a specific sin that I'd rather leave in the dark, 
When, when he's calling me to have a difficult conversation with somebody and I'd rather just avoid that situation. When he, he's calling me to help somebody when I'd rather just stay at home on the couch and do my thing. Calling me to, to question maybe something that I thought was true. And he's challenged. Maybe, maybe you're not seeing this right, Frank, you know. The gospel has changed me. It also daily challenges me. And as we study Acts today, what we're going to see in, in Acts 17 is, is different people responding to this good news differently. That some people get hung up with the fact that there's a risen Savior. And they go, that's, that's not true. That's a fairy tale. Some people get hung up with the way that Jesus rescues, not the way that they would want to be rescued. And we see some people getting hung up with the fact that Jesus reigns. And they have other people in their lives, including themselves, that they'd much rather see on the throne. We're going to see how the good news impacts us today, how it challenges us, how we ought to receive it, and how we ought to deliver it to the people around us. That's your outline for this morning. So let's look at number one, uh, Acts 17, if you have your Bibles, uh, how the gospel truth challenges, how it challenges. So if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through this book, and we are now at the second of three missionary journeys that Paul takes in the book of Acts. So this is the kind of the itinerary of his journey. Here are Paul and Silas, our, our missionary Batman and Robin, and they're going to pick up the story here in Acts 17 in Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, we're going to learn two things about what it means to follow Jesus. Two things about what it means to follow Jesus. First of all, following Jesus means suffering. It means suffering. So in verse 1 of Acts 17, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Remember, Paul always starts in the synagogue of that city and then goes from the Jews out to the Gentiles in that town. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue. That's what I just said. And on three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the scriptures, just the Old Test, our Old Testament, right? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, Paul said. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. So, understand what the Jewish people are hearing when Paul is proclaiming this news to them. The Jewish people for hundreds of years have been waiting for this king to come and rescue them. Their, their anointed one, they, they called the Messiah. And this Messiah was going to rescue them from, from real bondage. Remember, they came out of slavery to Egypt. And ever since they've been in the new land, because of their own hard-heartedness, they've gone into exile, been passed like a baton from Assyria to Babylon to Persia to Greece, and then finally in that day to the Romans. And all the way through, there have been these prophecies from Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah that there was this king that was going to come. He was going to conquer their enemies, and he was going to, maybe as we'd say today, Mega, he would make Israel great again, right? That was his. All right, that's that's cool. So they're they're missing though in, in this this waiting for this Messiah. A lot of them were missing this very very key ingredient about who this Messiah was going to be. So Paul is in the synagogue. This is like Jewish church. So there's the Jewish men and women in in the synagogue, um, and and he's showing them. What the prophets have, have been saying, that this Messiah, yes, he was going to come and reign. And yes, he would come and conquer the true enemy. But what they were missing was that this, this Messiah would also, he says it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Messiah was going to reign, but first he would suffer and he would die. And then he would raise. And he says, this is what it was saying. The prophets told you this. Now, now they, they seem to have completely missed that part of it. Now, it's understandable, right? Because if you ever read the prophets, 
They're super confusing, right? Like if we could make sense of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Revelation, anybody got the exact timeline to come down? No, the, the, the prophets are hard to understand, but I think part of the problem was not just a misunderstanding. It was also that they liked the idea of victorious king. They liked the idea of conquering the surrounding nations and being their own sovereign nation, but what they didn't like as much was the idea of a suffering servant, which is all over the book of Isaiah. And we too today, like we like the concept that Jesus would make our life better. What we don't like is the idea that Jesus might invite us into suffering with him. That's a, that's a much harder pill to swallow. That's what's so alluring about the prosperity gospel that's booming today. I, I would love the concept of, we could call it mijiga, which would be, uh, which would be uh, make Justin great again, right? <laughs> so I, I love the idea that Jesus would come and make my life better. Uh, I don't love the idea that he would call me to suffer like he suffered, to serve other people that he suffered. But, but, but Paul says this is who the Messiah is. Jesus came to show us that there is a roadmap to joy and victory. But that roadmap is not bypassing suffering, it's through suffering. He says, when you follow me, it's not just going to make all of your life go hunky-dory. don't remember where I grabbed that word from. It's going to call us into suffering, but it's suffering unto joy. It's what looks like defeat unto ultimate victory. It's Jesus rose from the dead. He says that actually, he, I'm, you, can, you can know that he's the Messiah because he suffered, died, and rose again just like the prophets said he would helping them show this is truly the Messiah, the Messiah that we need, not the Messiah maybe that we have in our own heads. Joy and victory through suffering, through suffering. The second thing he wants to show, not only does follow, following Jesus mean suffering, it also means submission, another hard pill to swallow. So in verse 5, the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They just bring trouble with them wherever they go, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king other than Caesar, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. So the Jewish people who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they know how to stir this crowd up. And they say, these guys are saying that there is a greater authority than Caesar. They're saying that this Jesus is the king. This is a subversive thought. And, and understand their skittishness here. The Jews have been under Roman the Roman Empire. They've been killed. They've been kicked out of their land over and over again because of these religious infightings. And they've ticked off the Roman rulers. So the, the Jews here are saying, hey, hey, these disciples that are preaching about Jesus, they are not with us. Like, get them, a.k.a. please don't get us. They're afraid of being kicked out of their land again, afraid of having their rights stripped from them again. And they're appealing to the Roman fear that there's a king that's trying to come and steal Caesar's throne. They're all afraid. And, and we need to be reminded today that the call to follow Jesus is, is, a, is a bigger call than just to acknowledge some information so that we don't have to go to hell when we die. Following Jesus involves laying down our plastic crowns and our feeble attempts to be the kings and queens of our own lives and to acknowledge that Jesus is the king. To, to, to surrender allegiance to this good and gracious king as we will sing about after the, the message. Now this is a challenge. The gospel, we said the good news challenges us, right? 
it challenges us of, in our political idolatry. What are the Jewish people struggling with here? They want to be free. They want to stay in the land that they, they've been given. They want, to, they want their rights. And those are good things, right? It's good of them. It's, okay. it's good for them to want those things. But when those good things become our ultimate things, that's when they become idols and become destructive things. Jen Wilkins said it uh, convictingly. She said that Jesus is more concerned that we live right than that we would protect our rights. And please hear what I said. More important, not that one's irrelevant, but what Jesus is more concerned about is that we would live rightly than he is concerned that we would cling to our rights here on earth. Now, for some of us, this also challenges us of some personal idolatry. And if you're like me, man, I love running my own life. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I got a one-month-old baby. I see that we are born with that, right? We live in a nation where we, we don't want to be told what to do, right? We want to do our own thing, be free to do what we want to do. And, and just like Caesar and the Romans felt threatened by this King Jesus, we don't want to be told by anybody else what to do either, right? Jesus is going to offend both the dictators out there, like Caesar and Putin, and he's also going to affect those in a democracy as well. The gospel challenges us by showing that following Jesus means suffering with him and submitting to him, but... It shows us that it's suffering unto joy, ultimately, and it's submission unto true, ultimate freedom in Christ. It's a challenge to our hearts. But then we, so how do we receive this good news that challenges us so? Well, let's look at the next city he goes to, verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So again, starting in the synagogue. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Man, he's hating on the Thessalonicans, right? So the next stop on the, the gospel highway is just down the street to Berea. Now, I want to tell you, the Bereans are rock stars. Have you ever heard the term, be a Berean? Now you have, be, be a Berean. Okay. Uh, so two reasons. Number one, they love the truth. They love the truth. Now, what we find from the Bereans is they are eager for the truth, but they are not gullible. Eager, but not gullible. Look at verse 11. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, and here's why, and here's why we say to be a Berean. Since they received the word, the truth that Paul and Silas were preaching, they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So two aspects of this. First of all, they were eager. They were eager, they were hungry for the truth. And isn't this what Proverbs invites us into over and over again? And it says, seek out. Seek out wisdom and knowledge. It's more valuable than any gold or silver. We need to be humble, curious learners. Like, man, my prayer is that our church would be a church marked by people who are not afraid to ask questions. There is, let's say, the only bad question is the question unasked. So don't be afraid. What does the Bible say about this? And what do we, what do we believe about this? How do we curiously, hungrily learn, eager for the truth? And yet, they're not gullible. They're not just open their fish mouth and letting swallow in anything that comes in. Look at what it says. They examined the scriptures, which again is their Old Testament, the Torah, daily to see if these things were so. So they're hearing Paul and Silas. They're saying what they're telling us, they got their scrolls unscrolled, right? And they're looking and going, does what they say match up with what I'm reading here in front of me? And again, that's my prayer for us, that, that we're, as I'm preaching, our Bibles are open. Right? I'm trusting that your phone right now, it's not Facebook, it's the YouVersion Bible app, right? Some of you are like, oh, yep, scroll over. Uh, that we would, would say, is what Justin's saying, is that actually lining up with what I'm reading in the Word? Now, maybe your understanding's off. That's probably what's going on. Going on. 
but, but let's talk about it. After the service last week, Blair came up to me, always afraid to you know, have a conversation face-to-face. And he says, uh, you know, man, you, you said this earlier in, in, the, in the passage. I was reading some other translations, and is, are we sure that's what it actually means? And we, we talked about it. We had a dialogue back and forth. And those are the conversations that I get so excited to have. Let's, let's examine Scripture to see if this thing is so. That we need to, that's why we're having these church and culture conversations. Next Sunday, for potluck lunch, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. And what does the Bible actually say about this? Not what do I want to be reality. Not to what do I think is true. But what does God and his word say about this thing? They love the truth. Eager, but examining the scripture to make sure it lines up. The second thing is they love those who are telling the truth. The Bereans, the other thing that makes them a rock stars, is that they, they love, they actually put... Paul and Silas before themselves. Look at this in verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul down in Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowd. This is the original trolling. They're just following them around like, boo, rocks. Verse 14, then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Uh, Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. So I love how the Bereans aren't just like, thanks for the information about Jesus, now you're free to go. They actually care about Paul and Silas and Timothy as people and protect them, even when it means risking their own lives. And and this is what we're called to as believers. We don't just gather here once a week to get some Jesus information and go back out on our own feeling good. We are called to be a family. We're a family in Christ. And to keep the commands of God is to love him and to love those around us as we love ourselves. This goes beyond Sunday morning. To be a family means to care for each other, to provide, to protect each other. I don't just check in with Jill and Lucy once a week. You guys good? All right, see you next week, right? That's not how we need to care for each other. So we receive the gospel with eagerness and we receive it with love. But how do we deliver the gospel? For that, we turn to our last destination. They're going to show up in Athens here. And in Athens, we're going to learn how we should, a good model for how we could deliver the truth to the people around us. Two principles I see in Athens. A, we need to learn how to be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of it. So look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So did you hear all the in and withs in that statement? That, that Paul leaves his home and he goes on a journey to these people. He's in Athens. And then it says he, he is in the synagogues with the Jews and with those who fear God. And he's in the marketplace. And that was the place where everybody hung out at the time. With the people we, like Paul, I mean, we, we got to go to the people, right? And it seems obvious, but we're so slow to, to walk in this that we can't talk to people about Jesus. We can't show people Jesus if they're not close enough to hear and to see. we got to be in and with. Maybe to say it a better way would be to heed the words of the ancient aquatic philosopher Ariel, who said, I want to be where the people are. I want to see, I want to see him dancing. I want to preach, I want to preach the gospel. That's a less known version of, the, of that song. We got to be up where they walk, up where they run, 
so that one day they'll believe in the sun. How's that? Is that good? Is that good? I was up all night with Lucy. I had nothing else to do. So <laughs> we, we need to be a part of their world, right? And we joke about it, but we, we've got to be in the world where the people are. If we're going to share the good news about Jesus, let's move along. Uh, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. So there are these two major thoughts, uh, schools of thought in Athens at the time, uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And since you all know all about the Epicureans and Stoics, we can just move on, right? Um, so the Epicureans, uh, they believed that there was no God. They would believe in materialism, that all that matters is matter. And because the only thing that exists is the material world, therefore there's no framework, no standard for morals. And therefore, you can just do whatever you want. That they would say, the Epicurean was famous to say, that our chief end, our purpose in life is just to have fun, just to just have pleasure, live it up. So we would call the Epicurean uh, Joyride Johnny. Here's Joyride Johnny. He's just having a good time. So that, that's the one way of thinking, the Epicurean philosophy. The Stoic philosophy, very, very different. The Stoics said there is God. In fact, not only is there God, God is all and all is God. This is what we would call pantheism. Pan, all, theos, God, pantheism. So everything is God and God is in everything. And therefore, because you are a part of God, you actually get to determine your own path. And we would call this self-determined Sally. There's a self-determined young lady, if I've ever seen one. And she's stoic. Remember, we, we get the word stoic, right, from the stoic. So this stoic-looking face. And they, had, they believed in this harsh mastery over nature. That I would, their, their line of thinking was, I determine what is right for me. And again, man, is, is, are these two things not in the mainstream today? Like, we think about the way that we, we the joyride Johnnies that would say, man, this, there's, there is no spirit world right? That, that, that we, all, all, all there is is what science can prove. So we got here accidentally. Let's just do whatever feels good. We definitely see Joyride Johnny all over our community. And then we also see self-determining Sally, that, that uh, people who say, I define my truth. And that self-mastery over nature, that my physical body doesn't define me, that it's my inner psychological self that says I can be whatever or whoever I want to be, that I am my own God. Like, this is today. We've got to pay attention here to Paul because he gives us a super relevant model for how to speak into a culture today that believes that it has graduated past materialism, or excuse me, graduated past Jesus and Christianity. So look, look at what he does. Verse 18. So these philosophers are debating with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he's telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching that you are presenting? Isn't this what happens to you when you go to work? Everybody circles around and says, hey, could you tell us about this good news that you're presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So this Areopagus, you may have also heard this called Mars Hill, was a, a place where a lot of the local authorities would gather together. And they loved, it says, they, all they would do all day is talk about truth. And, and they would love to invite new people in and share their ideas and maybe a new deity they had never considered. Because they had this whole pantheon of gods. They said, tell us about your god, and then we'll sit back in our togas and kind of go, hmm, yes, that sounds plausible. Or no, it does not sound plausible. And they would determine if your god could cut the kind of proverbial mustard or not. So what an amazing door that God has opened for Paul here to share what he believes about his God, about Jesus Christ. 
Paul has had an open door to share with these people about Jesus. And we ask ourselves, what, what doors are God, is God opening for us today? Now, we don't have, like, they were in the marketplace there where everybody was hanging out. Like, we don't really have much of that anymore, right? We're all at home with our smartphones and screens. We may not have a place like the Areopagus where everybody's saying, tell us the ideas, but we got to be looking for what open doors is God giving us. Now, some of us rub shoulders with more non-Christians than, than some of us, other, others do. As a pastor, it's easy to live in a Christian bubble, and I have to work hard to pop that bubble and to be in the world and not of it. So having to get creative, like being a substitute teacher at KBH Elementary is great opportunities there. I love basketball, so I'll go call games on the radio, be in the gym with people I've grown up with here on the peninsula, getting to know our next door neighbors. How do we, what, what work, what, what coworkers do you have that don't know Jesus, family members, friends? What opportunities do you have to share the love of Jesus with the people around us? Now, here's the, here's the dangerous prayer. God, would you open a door for me to share the gospel with people around me? When we pray that, we know we, God wants the people around us to know him more than we want them to know him. And I believe if we pray, God, would you give me an open door? Here's the scary thing. I think he's going to answer that prayer. God, would you make a way? Would you open doors and then stepping into those? We've got to be a part of their world. But then the important question in that is who is influencing who? Paul walks in, remember what it said at first when he arrived in Athens. He said he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So man, it grieves his heart when he sees people following these spiritual dead ends that are just leading them off a cliff of destruction. And Paul here, like Israel, remember what Israel over and over again in their story, they get sucked into the wrong ways of thinking, the wrong beliefs of the nations around them. Is Paul going to get sucked into the beliefs of the people around them, or is he going to stay faithful to declare the truth of the one true God? And for us, we've got to ask ourselves, as we go into the world, how do we make sure not, we're not becoming of the world? Who's influencing who? And guys, that's why we need a solid home base of, 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 a, of a spiritual family. Again, not just here once a week, but do we have real friends, brothers and sisters who love Jesus that are in the trenches with us, consistently reminding us of truth, encouraging each other in the truth? Like We've got to do this together so that we can go and be in the world as salt and light, but not of the world, and make sure the influence is flowing in the right direction. In the world, but not of. The other thing I see in this text is that we are to deliver, to, to deliver this gospel in a fresh way, but also in a faithful way. A fresh way, but also a faithful way. So how did Paul then, and how do we today, address a world that believes it has completely moved past all this God stuff? That says, we've got science now. We've evolved. We can determine our own truth. And how do we speak in a way that, that they can hear? Because just like then, today, it's not going to just work to walk up to somebody and go, Jesus died for your sins, the end. It's not going to work. Paul shows us how we can reintroduce a, a, a post-Christian culture to Jesus in a way that's fresh, but stays faithful to the old, old story. So let's look to God's word here in Acts 17 for some wisdom on how to do that. I see four principles as we close this down. Number one, we bridge the gap. We bridge the gap. So verse 22, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, let me your ears. I see that you are extremely religious in every aspect. So he goes, you're religious, I'm religious, right? Let's be religious friends. Like, he finds common ground between them. 
And then he says, I've noticed some things. For I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship. I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So this altar of an unknown God, we're not exactly sure what he's referencing here. But what we know is about 600 years prior to this moment, um, there had been this plague that had had ravaged Athens. We'll call it COVID-600. And, and the city had run out of options with what to do. And they call out, they asked for this prophet to help them. And so his very unique solution was to herd around a bunch of sheep. And he said, wherever these sheep lay down, you're gonna, we're going to build an altar there to the God of that area where the sheep is lying down. Now, they didn't know which God that was. And so the altars, it said, an altar to an unknown God. And what Paul does, he starts by meeting these people where they're at, and he affirms certain things about their view of the world, and then gets them to think about who is this God? You you said you don't even know who this God is that you're worshiping. He says, through this point of contact, he tells them, I know the God who has remained unknown to you, and I want to tell you who he is. He moves from bridging the gap to proclaiming who our God is. And guys, this this is our task, to show the world who God really is. This is the starting point, the foundation of our reality is is the character of God. A.W. Tozer famously said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that. The most important thing about you and I is what we think about God. And do we think about him rightly? Because he says, when we think about him wrongly, that's actually idolatry. He says, the essence of idolatry, to false worship, is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. So when we start to think about God in concepts that do not line up with who he really is, according to his revealed word, we, we slip into idolatry. So he says, the starting point here is, who God, he says, let me tell you who your God, our God, really is. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. For one man, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He says, our God, I believe in the God who has created everyone and everything. And this God, therefore, is in control of everything, and he does not need anything from us. He's a self-sufficient creator. And he's going to show us that who our God is has every implication for who we are and how we should then live in light of who that God is. So you take it back to the, the, the philosophers that are listening to him. He's telling Joyride Johnny... God has created us for a purpose. Like we have a design. So, so he starts with the commonality. Johnny, you and I would agree that we're created for joy. Like God created us for pleasure. But what, what I would say is that we're not just a, a sack of bones that evolved by chance, that, that God made us on purpose. And therefore, he made us for something far better than temporary pleasures. Because let's be real. Are those temporary pleasures, how are they playing out for us? Are they actually satisfying us and sustaining us? He says he's created us for something deeper, and that is his eternal purpose, which ironically is actually where the true pleasure and joy is found. And then he would say to self-determining Sally, that purpose, why did God make us? It was to pursue 
a personal relationship with him. Look at verse 27. He did this. Why? So that they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. So again, finding common ground. You guys have said this. For we are also his offspring. He says, Sally, you mentioned determining your own truth. Like, man, I want to know truth too. That's the, that's the common ground, bridging the gap. But what I've found is that, man, I make a crummy God of my own life. Like, when I'm running the show, things do not go well. When I'm following the chart of what I think is true, it ends in, in, in destruction, dead ends. And he says, I believe God has created us as his children to seek him and to find him. That we have been designed to know the, the Father Creator personally. I love what Augustine said. He said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And man, I don't know if you found that in your life. I've certainly found that in mine. I've chased the dead ends. I've looked, I've chased the temporary pleasures. And what I've found is the only place of rest is in relationship with God himself through Jesus. So then he goes on to say in verse 29, he says, since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine image, nature, who God is, is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. So they were bowing down to these representatives of, of God all around them made of wood and, and, and metals. And, and he says, what, what he's saying here is when we reduce God to a hunk of wood, what we actually do is reduce ourselves. So what we do is, is, is man, we, we misunderstand who God is, and then we misunderstand who we are. That you and I are incredibly and wonderfully made. Like watching the process of my daughter being born and seeing how God has designed this whole thing, this is incredible. It's wonderful. And if, that's, if we are made incredibly and wonderfully, how much more wonderful and incredible must be the God who has designed us? He says, this is our God. Until we reach outside of ourselves and stop trying to be our own gods and determining our own truths, we're going to be groping in the dark and we will become like the dead idols we serve. Because we become like what we worship. So if we're worshiping dead-end things, we will go toward dead-ends ourselves. If we are worshiping ourselves as God, we're going to become like ourselves apart from God. And, and that's not hope. But if we worship the one true God, we will become like that magnificent God that we serve in character. So then he draws the conclusion. This is who our God really is and therefore who we should be. And look at, watch how he draws the logical conclusion from this. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance when people didn't see crystal clear who this Messiah was to be, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Change your mind. You've been thinking wrongly about God. We got to think rightly about God because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And who's that man he has appointed? It's none other than the risen Savior, the risen Rescuer who reigns. If this is who God really is, he says, then what should be our response? And this is the beauty of the good news. The good news both elevates us and humbles us. It elevates us by saying, you're more than a sack of bones who got here by chance. That you're valued by God, created in his image to have a relationship with him as his child. The gospel elevates us far above any other philosophy of man. But the gospel also humbles us because it says, you're not the one who created you're the image bearer, you don't create images. That, that you're not the king, he's the king. That we bow to the king, and the king is coming back. 
He says the good news is that the risen rescuer, not only does he live, but he reigns, and he's going to come back one day. And every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And the call is, will we bow the knee now or then? How can Paul, how can we today make such an audacious claim? That could, that could become off pretty arrogant, right? That we know truth, and that everybody else, I mean, he's sitting in this Areopagus with all the most brilliant minds in Athens, and he goes, you all are wrong, and I'm right. I'd take some hubris, some chutzpah, as he would have said. How can we make this audacious claim to the world? You don't get to determine your truth. There is truth. You don't just get to live for yourself. You live for God. How do we, how do we claim this? There's one proof that we cling to, and this is where Paul leads to here as he closes. God has provided proof of this to everyone. How? By raising Christ from the dead. Our proof that what we're saying is true is that Jesus isn't in that tomb anymore. That Jesus is alive. That Jesus has risen from the dead and he's alive today. You can't, you can go, you can go all over Israel and you're not going to find the, the decomposed body of Jesus. Why? Because he's alive. He says, that's the proof. That's how I know that what I'm saying is true, that both there is a warning here of judgment to come, but there is also a beautiful hope of promised blessings of salvation for every person on earth who will bow the knee to King Jesus today. And then the last thing he does is he leaves the results between those who are listening and God. We don't get to determine the outcome. We just deliver the news faithfully. And we see a mixed bag of results, just like we would today. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. Some mocked him. And we're going to get that today, right? We've got to get used to, if we're following Jesus, we're going to get treated like Jesus got treated. And as we say, we're making a pretty crazy claim, right? That somebody came and was God and then died and then rose again. And a lot of people are going to write us off as believing silly myths. But then it says that others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. Some remain curious and say they want to know more. Now, curiosity is good. We want to learn, but there comes a time when the procrastination time runs out, right? A decision has to be made. It says Paul left their presence. We don't know if they circle back to this gospel or not. But then it says, however, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Some bridged the gap, embraced who God really is according to his truth, and drew the logical conclusion, bowing the knee to the risen rescuer who reigns. Guys, this is the good news. The good news is that Jesus is alive, that he rescues sinners. He loves rescuing sinners. And he reigns as the king now and forever. The question is, just like each of them received that good news differently, depending on where they were at, each of us in this room received this news differently, depending on where our hearts are at. So I want to close and do just a minute of heart work with us. So if you'd get quiet before God, close your, close your eyes, bow your head, whatever it takes just to be able to, to focus in here. I want to ask a few questions. We're all over the place in this room, so I'm not presuming to know where you're at between you and God. Let me just ask you some questions. Do you believe that Jesus has risen from the dead? Let's be honest, there are some people here that have come to church, they've gone through the motions, you're here with a friend or family, but like you haven't totally bought into this whole thing. It still sounds like a, like a fairy tale. I mean, it takes faith, right, to believe in this, this thing that it's beyond what we can see and touch. Do we really believe that, that Jesus is alive today? 
And then the implication of that, that he's our rescuer. Maybe in this room today, there are some who have misunderstood the rescue. And we love a Jesus that would make life go our way. But when we've hit these roadblocks of suffering, when we've hit these roadblocks uh, that call us to, to die to ourselves, I don't know if I want to follow a Savior like that. Or maybe you're here this morning struggling with the idea that Jesus reigns. Maybe we've been clinging on to some idols. Maybe the, the, the political party that you vote for, is you put more hope in that than, than, than the risen Savior who's reigning. Maybe you just don't want to let go of the steering wheel. I wrestle with that every single day. The good news this morning is that Jesus is alive, that he has rescued us from not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin, and that he reigns over us. And it is a much better thing for Jesus to be king than for me to be king, for Jesus to be God than me to be God. Do you allow the Holy Spirit to convict you in those areas? And Father, as we grapple with these truths, would you give us the grace to trust you as the risen rescuer who reigns? And then Father, would you ignite in our hearts like those Bereans an eagerness to know you an eagerness to know your truth but also that you be able to examine what we're hearing and say is this what God says in his word and then as our souls are filled with the joy and delight of knowing you as father and that's why you've designed us to pursue a relationship with you personally as our hearts are filled with the joy of knowing Jesus would you send us out with that joy into the world to be in the world but not of the world Lord, that we, we ask for open doors for opportunities to share the good news of this risen, reigning rescuer with those in our community and our workplaces, our family, our friends, our neighbors that don't know Jesus. Would you send us out by your grace to be able to be salt and light as we are part of their world. We know we cannot do this on our own, only in the risen Savior who reigns in our hearts. And so we pray this to our good and gracious King who sent him to rescue us, to raise us with him, and to reign with him now and forever. It's in that beautiful name that we pray and we sing in response. Amen.